jobs. I, I didn't find them through the newspaper or job ads. I found them through relationships. Thrive friends, this is your host, Dr. Solomon. How can we put an economic value on relationships? I'm joined today by an expert in strategic relationship matrices. He has been selected as one of the 50 emerging management thinkers in the globe in 2021. He published 11 books, including Relationship Economics and his forthcoming Curve Benders that will be available in 2021. His work on economics of relationships has been features in Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and other great outlets. He is the CEO of the Noor Group, a company that is focused on adding value in understanding and quantifying business relationships. David Noor, welcome on Thrive. Dr. Solomon, good to be with you. Let's start with your area of expertise, Noor. Quantifying relationships. I am really curious, what led you to study relationship economics? Sure. It's a really an interesting intersection between nature. So I'm originally from Iran. And as you know, in the Middle East, this idea of relationships is driven into us as a very young age. Exactly. And I distinctly remember walking through bazaars of Iran at a young age. And I didn't get it then, but I certainly get it now that my dad not only had a list of the things that he wanted for around the house and things that mom wanted, but he also had a relationship list and, and mm -hmm. individuals he wanted to make sure we saw during our Friday errands. So fast forward a whole bunch of years and a educational background and professional pedigree. And like you, I've lived abroad, I've worked abroad. You come to the US and I came as a teenager, but if you grow up and you work in the US or a lot of other Western countries, you very quickly see the disconnect mm -hmm. with the rest of the world that builds relationships first from which they do business. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, as Americans, we're so focused on the business part, whether that's a sale or a project or an investment or whatever the business initiative is, if and only if that part works, we may ask others about their family and how they're doing and what their challenges are and really invest the time and effort to get to know them on a personal level. So what I've tried to do is really create that intersection of the relationship first, but in the business context, also creating real economic value from that proactive approach, from that intentionality of focusing on, of investing in the right relationships for the right reasons. Thank you for sharing this, Noor. And when I read this, I start to think, well, how can you add numbers? to a relationship. So how do you quantify economic value in a relationship? Great, great question. In 19 years of my practice, you would appreciate the fact that nobody ever calls me and says, we have a relationship problem. What, what they, my work with global clients is really focused on business outcomes. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to penetrate a new market. We're trying to launch a new product. We need to find the right candidate for that position. In every one of these business outcomes, I would submit to you that resources are expend to get you there. Time, effort, capital, human capital, right? So the economic value of relationships really come in twofold. One is saving you time, effort, resources, right? So if I could get that project, that initiative done through my relationships in a week versus say six or 12 months, 
that cost of capital, cost of resources has real economic value. Mm -hmm. The other opportunity is actually accelerating either your time or your journey, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to launch this product. If I can launch it in 10 markets instead of one, I can garner bigger market share. So I can accelerate casting a wider net or I can be very precise with the target audience I want to reach through my relationships. So that acceleration also has economic value. So it's really important to distinguish the economic value add isn't through using people. It isn't through individuals per se. It is by leveraging those relationships to create the outcomes you want. And those outcomes have economic value. This is a wonderful segue to something I was thinking about when I was reading your books. And I said, well, some behavioral economists, including the famous Denarielli, suggest that there is a clash between financial and social relationships, and the two need to be separated. And it seems that you are in line with this notion. Very much so. And 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 his example in particular, I, I think, as I recall, reading his material said something like, if you go to your in-laws and they serve you a fabulous meal, and then you say, that was great. Can I, you know, say your mother-in-law, can I offer you $300 or $500 for that meal? Should be offended. And by the way, mm-hmm. ask your wife, what's wrong with your husband, right? Yep. So he's exactly right because of that social context. My work and my passion around relationship economics is really focused on relationships in terms of business outcomes. So mm-hmm. it is not in the context of that social, that personal, that the friends, the family, the neighbors. As a matter of fact, I, I tell you know, most of my, my clients that I work with globally, in the context, and that's really critical for your listeners, the context of the relationships that I focus on are very much focused on driving business outcomes, driving business results. So the example that I often use is I'm often asked by senior executives or their board or their investors in supporting their efforts in getting the right executive in the right role. So imagine mm-hmm. your startup company is looking for a CFO. Well, if I can leverage relationships, not just me, but anybody, and get that person in that position, again, in a month versus six or 12 months, there's economic value add in that accelerated time frame. So that's an example of absolutely leveraging. And again, I want to, I want to make sure I'm very clear. It's not about using people. As a matter of fact, to the contrary, I push back against that because people see right through that. Indeed. It's about leveraging relationships to accelerate or reduce the costs associated with the outcome, the business outcomes you're after. People watching us, if you are enjoying my conversation with David Noor, please check his website at noorgroup.com. And don't forget to click on the podcast on his website. It is really intriguing. He interviews really high-profile people, including common guests like Ron Carucci. Dory Clark, I think. Dory Clark, exactly. And don't forget to follow him on his social media, David Noor, one word. It is the same on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it. So Noor, some will argue now that adding value to relationship, specifically the business one, might lead to a future of calculated human interaction. What do you think about this point? Mohammed, it's, it's another one that I absolutely agree with. And I would submit, again, for your, for your audience, it begins with the mindset. So if you approach relationships as a meal ticket, if you approach relationships as highly transactional, I'm going to get a deal. 
or I'm going to get this project done, or I'm going to get something from them, I would submit to you that most people are going to see right through that. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get kind of pushback. Mm -hmm. Conversely, if you lead with the relationship investment, and, and make no mistake about it, I deeply believe in this notion that relationships take feeding and care mm -hmm. and investing in. But if you invest in those relationships and believe that regardless of what you do, we're all fundamentally in the relationship business, it should hopefully give you that longer term perspective, give you that long term view that will keep you from doing short term, often transactional, often calculated, often stupid things that ruin relationships. So I, I jokingly say everybody has a BS radar, right? And they will see right through someone who's not authentic, someone who's not real, someone who's trying to be somebody they're not. And, and again, it, most of the experience I think we've all had is we kind of push back on those kinds of things versus that transparency, versus that authenticity, versus, listen, no agenda. I just wanted to get a chance for us to reconnect and get caught up on both sides. And, and you and I also come from similar cultures where we deeply mm -hmm. believe in if you give, if you invest without any expectations, it's amazing how often that goodwill or that karma comes back around and mm -hmm. someone else will demonstrate their gratitude. Someone else will demonstrate their, uh, the fact that you're a gift in their life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's what I believe in. That's what I kind of advocate. And that's what I coach people to think about is leading with that relationship investment, taking the long-term view uh, and investing in fewer, but more real, more authentic relationships in their lives. And these real authentic relationships will lead to long-term business. Unequivocally, yes. In mm -hmm. every position, in every role, in the last 20 years of my business, what I've observed is those who take a long-term view, long-term perspective, and they think about their careers, they think about their business, they think about their value add as a lifetime spent on something versus a transactional something are dramatically richer, not just financially, but in their well-being, in their circle of friends. Look at this global pandemic that we've gone through. Mm -hmm. Do you have a list of people that you like, you respect, you trust that you can call without having to feel like you have to impress them or try to sell them something and, and really just talk through your challenges, your opportunities? What are you struggling? We're all struggling. What are you struggling with? What's working for you? What's not working for you? If you don't have those business relationships, if you haven't had tenure in some of those relationships, this might be a really good time to ask, why is that? And more importantly, what do you need to do to think differently about what I believe is your biggest asset, which is your portfolio of relationships? Any suggestions about this, Noor? What could people do? Yeah. So I, I can, and let me just use an example. When this global pandemic first hit, hard to believe, March of last year, Yeah. one of the first things I did, Mohammed, is, is, and it goes back to the story I told about my dad, I actually made a relationship list. I wrote down 100 names of what I believe to be my most valuable relationships. And I literally started going down the list and I called them not to sell them anything, not to talk about my books or my work. Or and I simply just ask, how are you doing? And what are you seeing? 
And what are you hearing? And how's your business? And I got to tell you, especially early on the pandemic and then some subsequent months, you would hear some heartbreaking stories. Like we had to just furlough 90% of our staff or a, a, a client of mine in the hotel business. Oh, They shut down all their hotels because they nobody was traveling early on, if you remember. Yeah. I started doing some work with an airline, something like 70% of the people that I was working with just a few months prior had moved on. They took packages and they moved on to other, other, other things. So most people you and I meet don't think in that manner. Who are my most, by the way, mathematically proven, an average individual can proactively manage about 100 to 150 relationships. Proactively. So which ones? And, and if you believe my assertion that it's, a, it's an investment, you cannot invest in everybody equally. So how will you then prioritize which relationships you choose to invest in? So start by making a list I, and keep it simple. A, B, C. A is who's most relevant, who's most important to not just your immediate well-being, but your long-term viability. Next group next group after that, and just pick up the phone. If you haven't already, call. Ask them how they're doing. Use this episode. Use our conversation as an excuse, right? I heard this session. I watched this session. These guys were talking about relationships. And take the high road. I've always believed the view is always nicer from the high road. I've done a terrible job staying in touch with you. I just wanted to touch base. I, I don't. There's no agenda. I don't want anything. Just want to hear how you're doing. And I want to hear how things are going for you. And I want to hear... What are you thinking about? What are you struggling with on the other side of this pandemic where I could be an asset? I could help in some way. And it goes back to if you invest in those relationships, as I said, it's amazing that you know, the, the fundamental laws of gratitude and reciprocity and pay it forward tend to come back in folds. Indeed. You reap what you sow. Absolutely. And it's more so true with relationships. And again, you and I come from this culture. We come from this background and it's driven into us at a very young age. Congratulations on your new book, Curve Benders. Very kind. Thank you. I'm excited. This is uh, book number 11. And I got to tell you, it, it never gets easy, but it certainly gets a little easier each time uh, you you know you get curious about a topic and you start to do the research and interviews and uh, you know it, it's a journey. It definitely is a is a journey and not for the faint of heart. You identify fifteen forces mm. that influence our current and prospective relationships. Mm. Could you elaborate on some of these fifteen forces that push that curve bender, which I think you mean relationship. You're exactly yeah. right. So uh, for your audience, I'm 53. Uh, I figured I will uh, I will retire when I die, right? Oh. So, but I but I hope to slow down one day. And and I've been really curious about. And this is typically how my books start. I, I'm I'm curious about a topic. So mm -hmm. in this case, I was really curious about the future of work. So what will the mm -hmm. next 10 years of my work look like? So I, I I started this journey hard to believe four years ago, reading a lot about. Mm -hmm future of work and reading a lot about what kind of disrupts the way we work. And, and then I, I got to tell you, this, this pandemic was a wake-up call mm -hmm. because as most of your audience have experienced, it didn't just disrupt the way we work. It also disrupted the way we live. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel badly for 
parents of young children who overnight had to become teachers and experimental chefs and IT support. And right. So it impacted the way we work, the way we live, the way we play. Mm-hmm. Notice we didn't go to movie theaters. We didn't travel. We right. Our family canceled a lot of those activities and also the way we give. Mm-hmm. So that's one example of something called the black swan event. Because mm-hmm. we know they're going to happen. We'd seen pandemics mm-hmm. before. We'd had pandemics before. We don't know when they're going to happen or the impact of these. Well, black swan events happens to be one of the 15 forces. The other ones like technology. Uh, you, your audience would would, would uh, be intrigued by this example. Mohammed, I saw an example of a AI engine that can scan and analyze 10,000 sheets of paper in eight seconds. If your value add as an accountant, an attorney, a real estate agent, any of those is reviewing documents, your job is threatened because now we've got all kinds of technology that is going to challenge those rudimentary, those mundane tasks, if you will. So technology is another force. Another one is grit. Now, Angela Duckworth wrote the seminal book by that title, and she described it as passion plus perseverance. And the story, very quickly, I like to use is, and I write, I wrote about this in Curve Vendors, the story of Jim Thorpe. If you or your audience have never heard of Jim Thorpe, uh, he was an Olympian at the 1912 Olympics. He was a, a Native uh, American Indian by heritage from Oklahoma. And if you Google his name, Jim Thorpe, one of his most famous pictures, you look down and it looks like he's wearing two different colored socks. Well, it turns out that the morning of his race, his running shoes were stolen. And the guy digs through garbage and finds a single shoe of two different sizes. So he has to wear an extra layer of extra pair of socks just so the shoe will fit and he can race. Jim Thorpe won two gold medals that day. And it's an example of grit that has to come from within. We have to stop using PowerPoint or our website or my email or whatever as crutches and just think about how do we get creative? How do we get scrappy? How do we get resourceful? You don't know it. It's okay. None of us are born with this. Go figure it out. But that grid, you have enormous amount of control over. And that's one of the examples, one of the forces that we believe will create headwind, tailwind, or turbulence in our future. So bringing it back full circle to your comment, my supposition, our research, our interviews, over 100 executives points to a few, but really strategic relationships in your life that will accelerate your growth through these forces, through these challenges. Said another way, if you look back on your career, Mm -hmm. most people can point to one, two, or more people who didn't just help them accomplish more, who didn't just accomplish, help them achieve more immediate results. But Muhammad, people who had profound impacts Mm -hmm. on shaping them as managers, as leaders, as human beings. Those relationships we call curve vendors. This is so beautiful. It's not only thinking about these relationships in terms of how much they added to my business, just how much they added to me, how much I added to them as well. 
you bring up a great point. So whenever I describe curve benders, the, the, the classic questions are, well, who are they and where are they and how do I find them? The actually most profound question that I was asked, and I put this in the book, was how do you become a curve bender in the lives of others? Mm-hmm. Beyond teaching somebody else how to do something, how do we shape that next generation? How do we shape others? such that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when they look back, they can definitively say, because of Muhammad, I am the person I am today. I am the manager. I am the leader that I am because I'm at Noor or I had a relationship with Noor. That is a, what, a, what an awesome opportunity. What a, an amazing responsibility for all of us to embrace this notion and really embrace taking others under our wings and passing on that torch that someone else shared with us, invested in us. Yes. People watching us, just a reminder, if you haven't done this already, open a new tab and check noorgrouponeword.com. And don't forget to check Noor's podcast. He has almost 50 podcasts now with some of big thinkers. Noor, now this is a question that is meant to inspire and motivate. Every successful person had a setback and really a big one, myself included. Mm. We managed to move from striving to thriving. Would you mind sharing one of yours and how you managed to thrive? Sure. So I think uh, in many ways, Mohammed, it is, um, it has come to define who I am as a person. So, you know, my story uh, originally from Iran, yeah. uh, parents are now retired teachers and uh, the old regime had an exchange program. We went to Kuwait and we spent, uh, you know, the next 10 years in several Middle Eastern countries and revolution happened. My parents actually went back to Iran and for me to have a better life, they sent me here to the States with a suitcase, a hundred bucks. I didn't know anybody. and I didn't speak a word of English. I came as a teenager and lived with an aunt and uncle uh, that I hadn't seen since birth. And I learned English and went to university here. And so in many ways, I believe I'm unequivocally product of two cultures, right? A lot of kind of natural tendencies from back in Iran, and yet you've learned to adapt in this new culture. But I got to tell you, now that I'm a parent myself, I can't imagine sending your teenage kid to another country without them speaking the language or knowing anybody. And mm-hmm. what an incredibly unselfish thing to do. And I will be forever grateful to not just my parents for having given me that opportunity, but to that aunt and uncle that took me in their homes and really gave me a chance to, to build a life. And now I've got an American wife and knock on wood, a couple of you know, amazing kids and I, I, I'm I, like you, I, I'm the quintessential living the American dream. I'm that poster of, a, of, a, of an immigrant. And, and really what I want your audience to hear is you're going to have bad apples in any community, in any environment, but most God-fearing, uh, tax-paying, law-abiding immigrants who come to our country legally are really searching for a better life. They're searching for not just an opportunity to survive, but to thrive. 
and and the American way of life, our democracy, our freedom, all the things that in some ways we take for granted, gives you, gives all of us that opportunity to get a great education, to stand up on our own two feet, to uh, earn a, a comfortable life. Uh, again, you've traveled, I know your audience has traveled extensively. To the rest of the world, two cars is wealth. To the rest oh, of the world, goodness. some of the homes we live in it is, is seen as Palace. incredibly palaces. You're exactly right. Yeah. And, and when you brought up striving versus thriving, the only thing I can think of is God bless the immigrants in our country. Because not only they're doing the work that a lot of Americans don't want to do, but last time I checked, there's not a whole lot of American Indians walking around. So we're all products. We're all part of this quilt that has become the American fabric. And, and I'm an American, and I'm proud to be an American. And I have a special place in my heart for immigrants who come here legally, and they want that opportunity. They want that chance to, as I said, earn an education, earn a living, be valued, be respected. And, and likewise, build a better life for their kids than they may have had on their, in, in their own childhood. How did you thrive during this time? What was going on in your mind? Like no language, no family. Well, you have the uncle and the aunt, but still your immediate family is not here. Sure. What was that for you? Yeah, it, it, it really is that grit that I mentioned that says, I'm going to find a way. I'm going to mm-hmm. figure out a way. To and, and, and it goes back to, again, a lot of what I do today. I don't need 100 friends. I'd rather have 10 true friends. I'd rather have five passionate, real, authentic friends. So um, I got involved with scouting. I, I played mm-hmm. soccer. Uh, so I, I made some friends, quick, few friends quickly. And then they kind of get to know the real you. And if you remember, this was this was in the uh, the 80s where the hostage the, the the Iran hostage crisis was going on, and and it was a really difficult time. And outskirts of Atlanta, Georgia, I, I was the only Iranian they ever knew, right? So they would see me during the day and then go home and see all the bad news, and they wanted somebody to beat up the next day, right? So it was it was rough. It was a really rough few years, but I also think when you go through that type of an experience away from your parents new environment, new culture, you're, you're trying to figure out, by the way, as a teenager, you, you've got all the hormonal things that are, that are going on in your body, right? You, you, you start to build a thicker skin. You start to build this unflappable mindset that, you know what? Nobody's dying in the work that I do. It'll be okay. It's never as good as you think, and it's never as bad as you think. Yep. So that duck above the water, right? Cool, calm, collected. It could be, you know, doing this under the water, but just keeping things in perspective. And it gives you a new perspective. You know, like, you know, any day in this country is a heck of a lot better than my alternative. So I'm willing to put up with a lot to continue to live here, to continue to benefit from the amazing opportunities this country has to offer. So the thriving came from that innate determination that I'm going to find a way. I'm going to figure out not just how to survive here, but really how to thrive. And how. And I did it through relationships. And I think that's a big reason I'm in the business I'm in is because I've personally benefited from this advice. I've personally benefited from finding you know, jobs. I, I didn't find them through the newspaper or job ads. I found them through relationships. 
uh, education. I, I got into the schools I wanted to get into through relationships. I even met my spouse through relationships, right? So if you think of the big monumental events in our lives, they're often, more often than not, through relationships. And, and that became a really good formula for me to capture and replicate in different stages that I've pursued over the years. What a beautiful thing to end this conversation with, Noor. And what a pleasure to have you on Thrive. My pleasure. It's good to be with you, Mohammed. Thank you. People watching us, until we meet next time, keep safe, keep motivated, keep resilient, and see you in the next episode of Thrive. Thank you.